everybody. This is future Crystal here. Uh, just as a uh, programming note, during the first 15 or so minutes of our recording session, I had the hiccups. We tried to wait them out and we weren't able to do that. So we went ahead and recorded. Ambie is going to do her darndest to edit all of them out. But honestly, there's a lot. So if you hear me making some awkward pauses or awkward noises, that's what those are. And I apologize for the distraction. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Board Game Blitz, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network and a podcast about all things board games that you can listen to in less time than it takes to watch the latest episode of your favorite show. Board Game Blitz is sponsored by Gray Fox Games. This week, we're talking about IP-based board games. First, we discuss a couple games we've played recently, like Mirabis and Picoco. Then, we talk about what happens when board games dig into the world of popular intellectual properties. Finally, we wrap things up with a look at the etymology of the word box. And now, here are your hosts, Ambi and Crystal. Before we start the episode, we wanted to announce that Dice Tower West registration opens on September 4th, which is this Tuesday, if you're listening to this around when it comes out. So both Crystal and I will be at Dice Tower West. It is in Las Vegas in March. March 6th through the 10th. Registration opens on September 4th, 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. Yep. So go register. Come play games with us in Las Vegas. We got the game Miraris from our Japan trip, and we hadn't played it yet. It's So Miraris is a card game that was published in 2017 in Japan that is designed by Y.O. Hashi, and the artist is Asahiro, and published by Domino Games. And it's a card game for three to six players, and it takes 10 to 20 minutes. So the reason we hadn't played it yet is because it had character cards with Japanese text on it, and we weren't sure if everyone needed to know all of the text on the cards. But then I read the rules recently and we were able to play it because the character cards are just used, you choose a character at the beginning and then the rest of the game is language independent. So that's nice. So in the game, Mirais, it's a card game with bidding similar to For Sale, if you've played that. But there's a line of cards called Wonders that have different point values for each card. And everyone has coin cards with values one to nine. You each have one of each number and you play one each turn and then you play them simultaneously and then you line up the numbered cards in order and you get the wonder card that's in that order of the one you played but if you play the same number as someone else then neither of you gets a card so you're trying to get cards to get the most points and if one of the wonder cards doesn't get taken then they stack up so the next round there's a stack of two cards there and that's worth more so you're trying to get whichever card you want based on what your um, character powers are. Because you also have character powers that do special things, like some of them just give you points, some of them give you more points if you don't have a certain wonder card, or some of them, like, you're trying to get certain types of wonder cards. So I I thought it was pretty interesting because of the way the bidding kind of works, because you're all playing a card simultaneously, but then you're trying to guess what the other person's playing. And then also... Once you play a card, that's it for the game. You can't play that number anymore. So you know what people have played, and then you're trying to not play what they are playing so that you can get a card. It's a really quick filler game, and it's really fun, and you don't need to know Japanese other than at the beginning when you're choosing your character, but you can just pass around the reference sheet 
at the beginning to all the people and then they can read it. So yeah, that's was Miraris, M-I-R-A-R-I-S. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it because it's not a word. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> How would you compare it to the other games that you brought back from Japan that you've had a chance to play so far? Uh, we only bought three games in Japan and I've only played one other one so far and that was Tokyo Highway which is a very different type of game. Didn't, did you not play the Kirby Sweets? I, I haven't learned the rules yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not trying to call you out on that. I thought you had. Yeah, so the Kirby one is all in Japanese. So I, I'll need to use Google Translate or learn Japanese or something. But I haven't gotten around to actually doing that yet. I like how nonchalantly you said that. You're like, I'll have to use Google Translate or learn Japanese. Like, that's a big thing to do, yeah. for, especially for a board game. That's dedication, folks. If you ever question Ambie's dedication to gaming in this podcast, she's stated that she's at least considering learning Japanese so she can play a game. Yeah, but... I did watch a video on the Kirby game, and I'm not anticipating it to be that good of a game. It just has Kirby on it, so that's why I wanted it. But um, we'll get into that later. <laughs> I, that, that, that'll be part of our conversation here in a little bit, so that's perfect. Yeah, yeah but this game, Miraris, was a really good filler game, and like I was not expecting it to be that good because it's just a tiny box card game, and it was pretty interesting. That's awesome. All right, well, my game that I'm going to talk about is Picoco. Picoco is published by Brain Games, who a lot of you may be familiar with because of their super popular penguin flicking game, Ice Cool. Uh, It came out this year in 2018. It is for three to five players, and it is designed by Adam Porter, who also designed Doodle Rush, which I played at BlitzCon. Did I play it with you? I think I did, right? Did we play it together? Oh, yeah, I think so. And I'd played it before that, too. Right. And I did not... I wasn't keen on Doodle Rush, but Mm -hmm. um, same designer. So Pococo is a trick-taking game. For those of you who aren't familiar with what a trick-taking game is, uh, Hearts and Spades are a couple of really popular ones. Uh, A lot of trick-taking games utilize a standard 52-card deck of playing cards. You deal the cards out, and then everyone plays a single card in turn order based on whoever took the previous trick. And then the person who wins the trick is whoever plays the highest card based on whatever suit was led. And there's usually a suit that is the trump suit that will beat any other suit uh, when it is played. That's kind of a really basic explanation of trick-taking games. So Picoco is a little bit different than a lot of trick-taking games in that it kind of borrows from games like Hanabi, because you cannot see the cards that are in front of you. They are placed into a plastic holder that looks like a peacock, and all of the cards look like peacock feathers. I will say, I know this is an audio podcast, but I highly recommend people Google what this game looks like, because it is pretty when it's all set up on the table and these little stands. It's nice that you don't have to hold your own cards, they just sit in front of you. So you um, deal out the cards, everybody can only, can everybody can see everyone else's hands, not the hand that's in front of them. Then you place bids on how many tricks you think each person is going to be able to take. You can see all the other hands, so you bid on those first, and then once everyone has bid on everyone else's hands, then you bid on your own. So you have some information at that point because everyone else already bid on how many tricks they think you're going to be able to take, so now you're kind of using that information to guesstimate without knowing what the cards are. You also have 
you have a confidence card that you play one of every round, and that will give a bonus if you get, if which, depending on which one you pick, it'll give you a bonus for getting an exact right bid on one of the hands. Um, so play can, play goes like a normal trick-taking game, except you're not playing the cards that are in front of you, you're playing the cards to the player on your left. So while I did liken this to Hanabi, and other people have made that comparison as well, it's not exactly accurate, because in Hanabi... The hand that's in your hand is your hand, and you're playing cards from it. In Pococo, you have a hand of cards that's sitting in front of you, but it's not really your hand, because how, how well that hand does doesn't actually mean anything to you, aside from you want to get the have it to take the number of tricks that you bid on it. So you have no ownership of it, but that hand on your left, you have control over how that hand is played. So I can kind of think the hand on your left is more your hand than the one in front of you, which is interesting. Uh, and it makes the game a little bit fiddly, to be honest. While you're playing, you're having to reach over to the person to your left and pull cards out of their holder. We had multiple instances while we were playing where, like, you'd go to pull a card and another card would slip out. Or I, at one point, my arm knocked the peacock that was sitting in front of me. And so, like, it kind of spun around and I had to, like, ah! like you know, <laughs> frantically cover my eyes and flail my arms up to not see the cards. Although I did also have a very dumb moment where I was like, oh, I should take a picture of me playing the game for social media or whatever. So I turned my phone to selfie mode and then put it out in front of me. <laughs> To, like, take a picture of me with the cards in the holder in front of me and didn't realize until I had it out there that, oh, I was about to be able to see every single card in front of me. <sighs> I was just like, I was like, I swear I'm not trying to cheat. I'm just dumb at this very moment. I didn't win. So if if I was cheating, clearly not good at it. Uh, yeah, no, I was not trying to cheat, but it was really funny that I just didn't even consider it. So I liked it. I played a lot of hearts and spades when I was growing up. I played hearts on the computer. Anyone who had a Windows computer in the 90s probably remembers that you had a few games that you could play and Minesweeper was one of them and hearts was another. So I played a lot of hearts on my computer trying to kill time. And then I played spades with friends in uh, high school. So Pococo is not better than those games in my mind because of the fiddliness. But it's not worse either. It's actually quite interesting and I liked it a lot. I think if there was a way to make the physical aspects of it less fiddly, I would be more inclined to play it more often. But honestly, I'm not really super drawn to trick-taking games normally anyway. I do own Diamonds, which is a somewhat more modern trick-taking game. And I like Diamonds, but I'm never compelled to pull it off the shelf and I'm not quite sure why. So... This one might be one of those occasional bring it out games. Is it one's probably good with family if you have family members that like old style card games. This is something that's just a step beyond that. So is, is everyone bidding on every hand? Yes, on uh, each person's hand? Yeah, everybody bids on every single hand and then you get points based on how close you were on every single one. So for instance, huh. if you're playing a, we'll just say a three player game because that's the smallest amount you can play with. If there's you, me, and we'll say Cassidy is the third player. 
Mm-hmm. You and I would simultaneously bid on how many tricks we think Cassidy's hand is going to take. Mm-hmm. Then you and Cassidy would simultaneously bid on how many tricks you think my hand is going to take. Then Cassidy and I would simultaneously bid on how many tricks we think your hand is going to take. Then, mm-hmm. at the same time, we would all then take the chips from our hand and bid on our own hands at the same time. Uh, we do- okay. That last part doesn't really need to be anything simultaneous, but you always get to bid on yourself last because then you have some information. Mm-hmm. If the number of tricks taken matches your bid exactly, you get two points. And if you're one off in either direction, you get one point. But then those confidence cards... If you're exactly right and you played the confidence card for that peacock, you get an additional three points, which is really big. This is a low scoring game. So three points can be a big swing. Uh, And if you were wrong on your confidence card, you actually lose a point. So those cards can kind of make or break the scoring in this game. Mm -hmm. There is a confidence card that you can always play that is just a plus one with no peacock on it. And that gives you an extra point at the end of the round, no matter what. So if like you're not sure about any of your bids, you always have an option that you can take, which is kind of nice. Okay. Neat. For this week's thematic segment, we're going to talk about intellectual property-based board games. And that is a topic that we actually kind of thought we had touched on before, and we might have at least in little bits and pieces, but we've never dedicated an entire episode to IP-based games before. So, Ambie, maybe we should talk about what is an intellectual property? So an intellectual property is formally defined as a work or invention that is the result of creativity, such as a manuscript or a design to which one has rights for and which one may apply for a patent, copyright, trademark, etc. So that's a very broad definition, but I think in the board game world, when most people say intellectual property, they mean a popular facet of pop culture in some form. So that could be Mm -hmm. a movie or a movie franchise. That could be a book series. That could be a TV series. It could be comic books, cartoons, anything Mm -hmm. like that um, would be considered intellectual property. So when it comes to uh, IPs in games, uh, there's a few different ways that game publishers choose to use intellectual properties. I'm just going to call them IPs going forward because it's shorter and easier (laughs) to say. So there's a lot of like older games like Monopoly, Yahtzee, chess, things like that, that um, get themed versions where an intellectual property gets slapped on top of the existing game and the game itself doesn't really change much. It just has different pictures, graphics, and occasionally some modified mechanics. But for the most part, they seem to be pretty generically the same, although I will admit I've seen the uh, Firefly version of Yahtzee and the dice roller is a little plastic version of Serenity. And like, I kind of want it, even though I don't want to play Yahtzee that much. So that actually kind of goes into what we're going to talk about in a minute. Like, why do publishers choose to use IPs? And that probably has to be something. Yeah, right. Um, Like there's games like Flux and Munchkin, which just keep Mm -hmm. churning out new versions with different intellectual properties attached to them. Love Letter. Oh, yeah. Love Letter. Lots of versions. (laughs) Well, and what's funny is uh, Love Letter. Yeah, it started as not really a mainstream game, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It was more niche, but then they've kind of, I think, brought it more mainstream potentially by throwing different themes on it. Yeah. So then there's also original board games that are created to directly display a specific IP. So the game was created with that IP in mind 
And I would say in most cases, the mechanics and the theme work well together, or they're at least intended to work well together. Some examples of that, Battlestar Galactica, there's a lot of Star Wars board games, there's some Star Trek board games, Marvel, The Expanse, The Godfather. Lord of the Rings! Lord of the Rings, of course! (laughs) So lots of different IPs that have been put into their own dedicated board games. And sometimes in like instances like Star Wars, many, many board games. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, I did want to mention there's also some games that kind of split the difference between those two. Like the Legendary Encounters series, the themes of those games tend to be pretty well thought out in how they work with the mechanics of the game. But the Legendary Encounters games all tend to work mechanically similarly. But I wouldn't group that that group of games in with the like Monopolies and Yahtzees and Munchkins because from what I've played of the Legendary Encounters games, they find unique ways to incorporate the theme into the existing mechanics in more distinct ways. The Firefly Legendary Encounters is a good example of that for me. I was actually quite shocked at the different things they were able to incorporate in that game to make the stories come alive. And I thought that that was pretty cool. But still, even with some of those um, older games, like I've heard Star Wars Risk is a good version. I haven't played it, but people say Star Wars Risk is like Queen's Gambit, which is like very different from regular Risk, right? I think. Right. So Star Wars Risk is not actually Risk. It just has the Risk name on it. So that's, oh, okay. that's so. an interest. Yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> distinction. It's not a theme on top of Risk. It's a different game that has the Risk name on it. So it so, has the Risk IP. <laughs> well, which you know what? That's an interesting point because there are people who played Risk growing up who are not mm-hmm. hobby gamers who probably like Star Wars and would be more likely to buy it because it has Risk on yeah. the cover, even though it really isn't Risk. And that's interesting because for gamers, I think a lot of people are like, ugh, Risk. But like for non-hobby gamers, the word risk is probably a positive connotation for a lot of them. You know, really great childhood memories of playing games with their brothers and sisters or their friends. So there's merit to both sides of that. So a lot of times uh, IP games get a bad rap, I think. So why would you think that is? I think IP-based board games get a bad rap because a lot of them are potentially not very well developed. Or at least they didn't used to be. I think the tide has kind of turned, but the general thought consensus has not necessarily shifted along with it. You know, I think with a lot of hobby games that are not IP based, it feels like in many instances, the mechanics came first and then the theme came later. Um, With IP based games, I would imagine in most cases, the theme came first and the mechanics came second. And I know that uh, game designers argue over which approach is better in developing games. And I don't necessarily think one is better over the other, but I do think in some instances, developing the mechanics first and making sure those are really solid can be beneficial to a game. And it's sometimes hard to then fit an intellectual property in seamlessly with already developed mechanics. So I think yeah. if you start with the theme first, you you kind of make potentially make it more difficult to build a good game around it. And there have been a lot of bad IP-based games. Yeah, and going back to your categories, I think 
because of the first category where the IP is just put on, pasted on a game, all the monopolies, that's what people see and that's what they think of when they think of an IP game because there's so many of those and those aren't great or like distinct IP games. So for me, when I think of an IP game, I immediately think of like Monopoly or something and I, I assume it won't be very good. But there are some games that are good, and I think that's more like your second category where it has the IP and it, uh, the theme also works well with the mechanism. So they built the game for that IP kind of. So I think those are generally better games. Um, I just did a little bit of Googling. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question, Ambie, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have you guess. <laughs> uh, now, this is not a definitive answer, but based on the Monopoly wiki... How many different versions of Monopoly oh currently exist? Uh, 300. Quadruple that and you'd be a oh lot God. closer. 1,144 different versions wow. of Monopoly. Is it, how is that sustainable? Well, they can't all be in print, right? Well, probably not. <laughs> but just the fact that they exist. I mean, there are people that, you know, this is a good point. I think the reason that some of those happen is because people like to collect variations on the same mm -hmm. item. And that's not just based on games. You know, why does, do people collect stamps or baseball cards or anything? You know, if you're not necessarily using them, it doesn't necessarily mean anything if you are just a collector of things. So by mm -hmm. uh, Hasbro, assuming Hasbro still owns Monopoly, I think that's accurate. By them putting out more versions, then people have more things to collect. And you can hit everybody's interests there is a monopoly yeah. that will <laughs> appeal you. to everyone i will admit i've seen i don't i don't own any copies of monopoly currently but i've seen things like jay and silent bob strike back monopoly and been <laughs> at least tempted a tiny bit to buy it because that's it's so ridiculous yeah. but it's also fun i mean i've been guilty of buying games in high school, I had, I think I had Lord of the Rings Risk. I had Lord of the Rings Backgammon, which I still have. Um, I had Lord of the Rings Trivial Pursuit, like three different ones. Wait, 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 hold on. We're going to have to, how do you theme Backgammon? It's not themed. It's just it, the, the pieces are the rings. <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard to play though, because they have, the colors are gold and silver and you can't really tell them apart. <laughs> this might be the best thing I've ever heard. I had never, never knew that there were themed versions of Backgammon. I, I kind of hope there's a lot of different versions of Backgammon now because that's funny. Uh, but, but so yeah. you owned a lot of Lord of the Rings games because you liked Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> I, I no longer own most of them because Toby convinced me that I should get rid of them since I never play them. And I like, I definitely am, like I said before, you know, I'm drawn to games that have an IP that I'm interested in, but I think... Earlier in my gaming career, I was more likely to buy a game because of the IP. And mm -hmm. at this point, I'm less likely to do that sight unseen. Yeah, me too. Like, I love Star Trek. You all know that. But I think Star Trek Panic is a horrible game. Unfortunately, I purchased it before I played it. <laughs> and that was a mistake. I also own uh, Adventure Time Munchkin. 
because I love Adventure Time. And I will admit, if I'm going to play Munchkin, that's a version that I enjoy more because I like the Adventure Time references. Uh, I have Monty Python Flux. I love Monty Python. And if you play a version of Flux that has an IP and everyone playing it also knows the IP well, that can be a lot of fun. Because now Mm -hmm. you're singing Monty Python songs and (laughs) quoting Monty Python movies. And that is kind of where the fun of those themed games come for me, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, I'm I'm hesitant to play or get games that have ips now she says as she buys kirby games in japan <laughs> yeah that's true yes <laughs> so that one is also like a collector type thing because it's very limited edition and, and you do have no a lot of kirby stuff so that fits yes, in I, with I yeah your like kirby other stuff. <laughs> kirby stuff <laughs> yeah i have like four kirby stuffed animals i think and you have that little figurine with the moving arms and legs it's so cool yeah i, I have that too <laughs> But for other board games, there's a couple that came out recently at Gen Con. One is Disney Villainous, and one is Death Note Confrontation. So I really like Disney, but whenever there's a Disney board game, I expect it to be bad because, I mean, when I was a little kid, the Little Mermaid game was my favorite game when I was like three, but it's a horrible game. (laughs) It's like spin and move and you can't lose and <laughs> I wish yeah. everybody could see your face while you're saying that you're like Ambie's eyes got all wide and she's just like you can't lose <laughs> yeah but I guess it's good for little kids who like Little Mermaid <laughs> so I don't expect Disney games to be good but I've been hearing good things about Villainous because it seems like it's actually like designed thinking of the theme and it sounds interesting so I'm Still cautious, but optimistic about the game, and I want to play it. And then Death Note is an anime that I really like. It's about, like, two people who are both really smart, and they're basically, like, fighting against each other. So the game is a two-player competitive deduction game, which is basically what you would think of when you're thinking of the anime. So I'm optimistic about that, too, because it's a game that the mechanisms sound like it goes with a theme. And I like deduction. (laughs) <laughs> we, I think we talked about it at some point, or I talked about it with somebody, maybe, maybe on Twitter. Yeah, I've seen it on Twitter a lot. Yeah, Death Note sounds very interesting to me. I've never seen the anime, but mm-hmm. I want kind of want to check it out. There was another game that I don't know if it released yet. It may have come out at Gen Con uh, that's also IP-based that's getting a lot of buzz, and that's Hail Hydra, and that's mm-hmm. a Marvel-themed game. And if I remember correctly, Tom Vassell said that this game kills Battlestar Galactica for him. Like, Yeah, I saw his review on that. I was kind of like, oh. <laughs> he said it's his favorite social deduction game, I think. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I think he said it kind of marries some of the concepts from the Resistance yeah. and Battlestar Galactica together. I don't know if anything could kill Battlestar Galactica <laughs> for me, but I will admit that that comment made me more interested in checking it out. Yeah, I'm also interested in checking that out, even though, like, for that one, I don't really know much about the IP because I didn't read comics. I mean, I've I've never really read comics either. I've seen most of the Marvel movies. I have a few that I have not seen. All right, so I know we're running short on time, Ambie, but I wanted to ask you, do you think that IP-based board games are in greater danger of becoming obsolete because of their subject matter? Does a game's popularity hinge on its IP's popularity? That's probably a better way to phrase this. So it might, I think. Well, it will definitely get people to look at it more. But then as a game gets older, like for Battlestar Galactica, that 
TV show is no longer running. Yeah, it's been off the air now for 10 years. Yeah, so the game is still played a lot. I actually played Battlestar Galactica without watching the TV show. So I think with a good game, even if the IP is something that you haven't seen, it can still last and stand the test of time. But probably you'll need some people who know what the IP was because otherwise they won't look at it as much or they'll be like, what, what is this? Why is this called this? Or Yeah, it does seem like knowledge of an IP can definitely uh, enrich an experience with an IP-based board game. But I think the best games that have IPs attached to them are the ones that you don't have to have knowledge of the subject matter to yeah. enjoy them. So that's probably why some IP-based games get a bad rap is because if they don't put that time and work into the mechanics, yeah, then uh, other people... Because then you're then it's like a niche within a niche. You've got... Mm-hmm. Board games are already a niche hobby. And then if you pick a specific thing that only a certain percentage of people are fans <laughs> of, you've now limited your audience potentially even further. So if it's not yeah. a good game, nobody else is ever going to pick it up. There's an IP-based game... Sons of Anarchy. People talk about that game being really good, but I've never watched the show, so it kind of doesn't appeal to me. But like, if the, the people say the game is good, and they say that even if you don't like the show, you could you would like the game. But because it has an IP attached to it, for whatever reason, I've been less likely to check it out. So, hmm. so I haven't seen Sons of Anarchy, and I didn't actually really know it was a show. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> yes. for me, who doesn't know much about IPs and is like out of it culture-wise. It probably just seems like another board game to me. So even though it has an IP, I don't think it it separates it from other board games for me. If I don't know anything about it being an IP. Yeah, it's not negative or positive for (laughs) you in that regard. It's just, oh, it's a game called Sons of Anarchy. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, we could probably talk about this for another hour uh, if we really wanted to. Uh, But we would love to continue the conversation with the rest of you. If you all have a favorite IP-based board game, uh, please share it with us um, in our BGG Guild on the thread for this episode. Or uh, come tweet at us over on Twitter. You can reply to the tweet for this episode. Message us. Email us. Whatever you want. We would love to hear from you. And we'd love to hear why you love the IP game that is your favorite, whether that's because you love the subject matter or the game itself or both. I'd be curious to know. And if you know of any really obscure IPs that have been turned into board games, I'd be interested to hear about those as well. For this week's etymology segment, we're going to look at the origins of the word that represents the thing literally holding board games together. Box! The English word box, meaning a rectangular wooden container, usually with a lid, came from an old English word of the same spelling, but it also represented the name of a type of shrub. It can be traced back through the late Latin buxis, which came from the Greek words pixis and pixion, which meant a writing table or box. It uh, also could represent something made of box wood. Those words came from the word pixos, meaning box tree. That word's origin is actually unknown, um, but people think it may have come from Italy because the boxwood tree is native to Italy. The phrase to think outside the box seems to have originated in the 1960s or 1970s and has become a little bit cliche when used in a business sense, but the idea to expand beyond typical thinking patterns was heralded by psychologist and inventor Edward de Bono, who coined the term lateral thinking in 1967. 
The box that the phrase is sometimes referring to comes from a book that was released in 1914 called Sam Lloyd's Cyclopedia of 5,000 Puzzles, Tricks, and Conundrums. One of the puzzles, called the Nine Dots Puzzle, had a grid of nine dots, and the goal was to mark through all of the dots using the fewest straight lines possible. All of the lines had to be connected. You could never lift your pencil. Um, so feel free to draw up a square-shaped grid with nine dots and try it at home. Or, you know, grab a box off your shelf and play a board game. And maybe by thinking outside the box, you'll be able to have a more enriching experience while you're playing it. And that's it for this week's Board Game Blitz. Visit our website, BoardGameBlitz.com, for video and blog content, as well as to get links to all our social media pages, including our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Board Game Geek Guild. This episode was sponsored by Gray Fox Games. Make sure to pick up a copy of Pocket Mars from your friendly local game store, or you can order it directly from GrayFoxGames.com. Gray Fox Games, quality games, cleverly crafted. If you're enjoying the show, you can rate and review us on your podcast provider or consider becoming a patron. For as little as $1 a month, you can unlock access to unedited episodes and our private Slack channel, which lets you chat with us and other Blitzketeers directly. Head to patreon.com slash boardgameblitz to become a patron today. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Morrow. Technical support provided by Toby Mao. Board Game Blitz is a part of the Dice Tower Network. Until next time, Board Game Blitzing Gamer Friendship, Board Game Blitzing Gamer Friendship, Board Game Blitzing Gamer Friendship, let's switch in your headphone. Podcast power. Bye, everyone. Bye. Yes, come play games with us in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the game Miraris is. <laughs> I don't know. I just blanked out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I'm hiccuping through the whole thing, so you can do whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> uh, deal all the cards cards out to the players i can't this is ah it's kind of a really basic explanation of trick-taking games (laughs) (laughs) okay keep sneaking out good luck editing all of those out ambi based board games which is something that we thought we had discussed before but we haven't or at least not as a whole episode topic we've definitely discussed some games (laughs) the world is conspiring against me Ooh, alliteration alliteration time all right ambi last week or last episode i should say we asked everyone to retheme a stained glass window building game for an old wise person wearing baggy clothes what game would that be that was Saggy Sage Sagrada. Woo! Congratulations to those of you who got it right. Uh, this week, we're asking you to retheme a game about serenity for folks who harvest crops in a comedic manner. Good luck, everyone!